Strategic Defense Initiative, also called SDI, was first announced publicly by U.S. President Ronald Reagan in March of 1983. The SDI was created with the intention of ending the nuclear standoff between the United States and the Soviet Union. A concept called Mutually Assured Destruction, or MAD, had become the leading military defense doctrine, meaning that if one side nuked the other side, the losing side would have fail-safes in place that would launch all or most of their weapons, destroying their attacker either way, and potentially ending the world as well as a byproduct. So in an attempt to sidestep MAD, Reagan gave the go-ahead on SDI, and in the following year, the SDI organization became a wing within the United States Department of Defense. This organization was tasked with developing defenses that could, in short, knock down or otherwise defuse intercontinental and submarine-launched ballistic missiles. If the Soviets launched a nuke, the U.S. wanted to have ways to zap its propellant with a laser, fry its guidance systems with a microwave beam, or knock it out of thin air with another missile. The frustration that led to the creation of this government organization is easy to understand, even in retrospect. Imagine that you are the president, you are Ronald Reagan, and you, like he did, are visiting the Cheyenne Mountain Complex in El Paso County, Colorado, in 1979. The Cheyenne Mountain Complex is a military bunker built inside a mountain So it's one of the safest possible places to be in the event of a nuclear war. And this place is filled to the brim with systems that can detect and track Soviet warheads with very high accuracy. This was incredibly high technology, especially for the time. But when Reagan asked the people running these systems what options they had once they had detected and started tracking these warheads, they told him that their only option was to launch their own, meaning all the tracking was somewhat pointless, at least after the moment of detection. We could detect the nukes, and then we had to decide whether to fulfill our side of the suicide pact that we had with the Soviets. The only alternative was to let them kill us unpunished, and then go on to take over the world. That was the gun barrel that Reagan was staring down when it came to nuclear policy. So he could be forgiven for becoming enthusiastic about technologies, most of which never panned out, that seemed like they might represent a change in that state of affairs. Many of the projects that were pitched and discarded previously, that seemed like they might be able to achieve this end, were borderline fantastical, and some were incredibly interesting. One military advisor proposed building and training a squadron of manned space fighters, essentially fighter jets, that lived in low Earth orbit, that could race out to handle any intercontinental ballistic missiles that shot up into space, which is typically a requirement of ICBMs, by the way. They are launched into space, just like a rocket meant to deliver a satellite or some other non-military payload. But instead of positioning a communications device, let's say, they instead serve as a disposable platform for a missile that can then shoot out of that rocket and hit essentially any target on the planet. 
But the manned fighter plan was quickly scrapped and replaced by a concept that was originally pitched in the 1960s, but which had since become a little bit more technologically realistic. Project Bambi called for a constellation of satellites to be placed around the planet, all of them filled with interceptor missiles that could attack any detected Soviet ICBM as it arrived in space. So before these Soviet rockets had the chance to open up and launch their missiles from space back down to Earth, the idea was that one or more of these Bambi satellites could open up and launch their own missiles to knock out the rocket, which is easier to hit than the missiles that would eventually pop out of it, because the path is more certain and the rocket is fighting against gravity to go up into space, rather than working with it, as is the case with the downward-flying missiles. But Project Bambi and a few other similar concepts were eventually discarded due to the immensely high cost of building and maintaining such a system. The administration then refocused its attention on other types of ballistic missile defense, or BMD, technologies. But because most of these technologies required building missile defense stations in civilian areas, essentially giant missile launchers inside or just outside highly populated cities and towns, the public outcry, which manifested as protests during all public-facing presentations for the program, made this option fairly untenable. By the early 80s, another technological option was on the table, one that had been tested in various forms throughout the previous decade. Project Excalibur was a nuclear missile deterrent system that essentially involved putting nuclear devices in space and surrounding them with expendable X-ray lasers. If nuclear missile launches were detected, these nukes in space could be automatically detonated and the lasers would focus the X-rays emitted by the nuclear blast at numerous enemy rockets. This alleviated the issue of basing countermeasures amongst civilian populations. These weapons would live in space. And it also meant that each Excalibur unit could take out potentially dozens of enemy missiles, as each ICBM rocket could carry several missiles, and each Excalibur unit could take out many rockets. Each of these units would have something like 50 lasers attached to it. So at the upper limits, if the thing worked perfectly, that's 50 rockets containing several missiles apiece that are knocked out by X-ray lasers before they can do any harm, which is a pretty good deal. A bargain, really, if everything worked optimally with this system. This project, though, despite substantial investment from within the government and support from the relevant political figures, floundered by the late 80s. Issues with the program were concealed by leaders within the Livermore and Los Alamos research facilities, and those who tried to blow the whistle were silenced and outcast by researchers whose careers were writing on the success of this project. Eventually, those concerns reached the right ears within the government, and then reached the public in 1988, and the final test for Project Excalibur, which was planned to take place in 1992, was cancelled along with the program. Now, amidst the intrigue around Project Excalibur, President Reagan gave a famous speech that came to be known as his Star Wars speech. He called upon scientists to use their brilliance to develop technologies that would render nuclear weapons obsolete. 
This was when the aforementioned Strategic Defense Initiative was started with its accompanying organization. And this is when all those pre-existing plans were assessed and discarded, and when a flurry of new and exotic ideas emerged from defense contractors and think tanks around the country. One of those concepts, which was initially ignored for being too costly, eventually rose to the forefront of the discussion. Space-based lasers were proving to be effective, though they would still need a great deal of work before they would actually function as intended in real life. They needed to have their power amplified a hundred times or more, which could take a while if it was even possible in the first place. But the most promising option seemed to be a concept that came to be known as smart rocks. The administration threw its lot in with this concept, which was a sprawling and multifaceted strategy. So you can assume what you will about politicians and what this says about their method of strategizing, that they go with the most complex option on the table, even when it comes to nuclear deterrence. The Smart Rocks program, which was actually called the Strategic Defense System Phase 1, included ground-based missile launchers, high- and low-orbit sensors that could detect missile launches from the ground, and a collection of orbital missile nodes, basically small bases in space filled with missiles that could be launched to intercept nukes as they popped up into orbit. This network of missile launchers were all connected to each other and operated in tandem as a great big networked mesh. But the system was criticized heavily on two different fronts. First, the cost ballooned from $40 billion to $100 billion over the course of just one year. And even at $100 billion, most experts agreed the cost was still unrealistic and would only grow from there. And second, it was theorized that the Soviets could fairly cheaply and easily knock these satellites filled with missiles out of orbit using clever non-nuclear anti-satellite weaponry, meaning the U.S. would spend a fortune building these things and getting them up into orbit, but the people they were meant to neutralize could, without too much trouble or expense, take them out of commission, destroying all those missiles and eliminating part of a mesh that was built to work together, lose a few pieces of that web, and the whole thing falls apart. Livermore, one of the research facilities behind the defunct Project Excalibur project, was scrambling to figure out a way to keep themselves relevant within the world of missile defense as they were looking pretty bad after that project's failure and cover-up. They came up with a concept that was similar to the Smart Rocks program, but which made use of the then-burgeoning field of microprocessors. Essentially, right at that moment, in 1986, microprocessors were becoming available that had the power of a supercomputer, a supercomputer of that era, but all of it contained on a single chip. That meant that you could put one of these computer chips inside of each and every missile rather than having to rely on smart station hubs filled with missiles and the missiles reliant on information from that station about where to go to intercept their target. This new concept, which was a riff on the Smart Rocks project, was called Brilliant Pebbles, and it solved a lot of the problems with the prior, less technologically sophisticated version of the space-based missile plan. If the Soviets wanted to take out these countermeasures, they would need a missile 
for each and every one of these smart missiles that were up in orbit. And because the overall system would be less reliant on a relatively small collection of nodes to guide the larger number of weapons, all of the pieces in this network could work independently of all of the other pieces. There wasn't one or a few points of failure that could be targeted. Because this concept also scaled down the size of the weapons and the number of assets required, the overall cost of the entire project dropped from somewhere over $100 billion to somewhere around $10 billion. This concept was reworked and adjusted in the following years due to changing technological realities and changing political realities on the ground. The Soviet Union collapsed in 1989, and President George Bush Sr. came into office. Several versions of the Brilliant Pebbles concept were tested, and the system was considered to be a solid option to counter the threat of large-scale intercontinental ballistic missile attacks. But in the years since the project began, the scope of relevant threats had changed fairly dramatically. The threat of Russia nuking the U.S. was no longer considered to be the main existential concern for the country. Short and medium-range non-nuclear ballistic missiles launched from platforms and jets at troops on the ground in military theaters were now the big concern within U.S. military leadership. The Pebbles had nothing to offer in this regard. They couldn't do much against short-range missiles that never entered space and which were perched atop rockets that utilized shorter propulsion burns. This led to the military's refocus on what were called Protections Against Limited Missile Strike Concepts, the acronym for which was PALS. One of the more successful PALS concepts was dependent on the High Endoatmospheric Interceptor, which was a short-range mobile interceptor missile that was guided by a combination of land-based and satellite-based sensors. That concept quickly evolved into the LEAP, or Lightweight Exoatmospheric Projectile, which is a lightweight miniaturized kinetic kill vehicle, a missile that slams into other missiles to blow them up or disarm them before they reach their target. You may have heard of one of the branded versions of LEAP that were used in actual combat around this time. During the first Gulf War, Scud missiles were being used against U.S. and U.S.-backed soldiers. Patriot missiles were then cleared for use by the U.S., and of 42 Patriot missile launches, 41 Scud missile intercepts were achieved. A near-perfect record, which convinced Congress, which had been skeptical of the validity of the Strategic Defense Initiative, to support the organization that had been able to shoot enemy missiles out of the sky and whose interceptions were being broadcast around the country on the news each night. The Brilliant Pebbles program was eventually canceled under President Bill Clinton as the SDI refocused its attentions on ground-level missile interceptions, leaving the more exotic space-based solutions to science fiction for the time being. And that is, at least publicly, still the case. There's plenty of evidence, however, that countries capable of doing so have been slowly, quietly, and very subtly arming themselves in orbit for decades. And although most evidence in this space is circumstantial and speculative, it's still smart to ask ourselves this question. What might be the consequences of war 
or even limited military action in space. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I want to start with today comes from The Atlantic, and it's entitled, Why We Should Be Worried About a War in Space. This is a topic I've touched on from a few different angles in past episodes, but I haven't delved into this facet of space and warfare at any great depth thus far. And a dive here is warranted, I think, partly because it's a very real possibility that at some point in the near future there could be a conflict that takes place in part or primarily in space, and also because, strangely, we lack an abundance of fictionalized portrayals of what such a moment might look like, how it all might play out. Which is weird to think about. When I had that realization, I thought that it couldn't possibly be true. We've culturally, repeatedly and iteratively worked through what might happen during and as a result of first contact with another sentient life form, for instance. That's something I think we're fairly well prepared for, psychologically, all things considered. It'll still be a big deal if and when alien contact happens, but we've had a lot of opportunities to view that concept from multiple angles and to think through the moral and practical repercussions and consequences of different courses of action as a society. Alien tropes are a huge part of pop culture around the world, and that has allowed us to prepare ourselves in that regard. Contemporary warfare scenarios that also involve space, however, Not so much. There are portrayals of near-future war where a great deal has changed and there are new, currently unproducible technologies at play. I'm a little behind the times when it comes to video games, but the late 2014 game Call of Duty Advanced Warfare featured combat in a mid-20th century arena from the years 2054 to 2061. In the game, you use vaguely futuristic guns and majorly futuristic exoskeletons alongside cloaking technologies, direct energy weapons, personal combat drones, and things like that. In settings of that kind, you will often see references to space infrastructure. Your smart weapons are guided by sensors and satellites. You maybe have access to space planes or ICBMs. But other than the future tech, it's usually war as usual, or maybe war that expounds a little bit on current trends. In advanced warfare, for instance, a major plot component is the increasing power and influence of private armies and arms manufacturers. But other than that, the stakes are still kind of the same as they've always been. Now, anything that goes a few decades into the future typically depends on some kind of far-out future tech or some world-shaking change to the way things are. We've been contacted by aliens, we're post-nuclear holocaust, we're post-scarcity, we're engaged in never-ending world-spanning conflict, there are robots doing all the fighting in our wars, or we're all in some kind of matrix-like digital world. Whatever the specifics, everything has changed. The gap between here and there is kind of a black box. It's all predicated on that not-yet-relevant milestone that made the story a compelling one to tell in the first place. Part of the reason that producers of fiction, of any kind, of movies, of books, of video games, part of the reason they avoid that awkward space in between, I think, 
is that first, it's easy to be wrong and easy to be proven wrong very quickly, especially if you base your story just a few years from now. And second, the nature of conflict in that space during that time frame is remarkably difficult to lock down and define. It's easy enough to come up with a compelling setting in the relatively distant future and a post hoc rationale for why things are the way they are. And it's easy enough to expound upon what's happening today to set up a conflict tomorrow based on essentially the same rules of engagement. But what about 10 years from now or five years from now? That's stickier work. By the time you're done writing the book or producing the film, you could be proven wrong. It will be essentially the time in which you're setting your tale. Or your fiction could be less surreal than reality has become in the meantime. It's difficult to know. It's a bad investment by most current media production business models. This article from The Atlantic is about that unknown, less often fictionalized space in between. It's about the status of international law in space, especially as it applies to conflict. And it talks about the current state of things way up there in orbit around the planet and beyond. One important tidbit you can't help but walk away with anytime you read about this subject is that there's a lot we don't know, a whole lot about the current state of things. Someone knows. Those working on the relevant technologies and those high enough up in the political food chain no doubt know a whole lot more than I do. But most of us here on the ground, without high-level security clearance, there's just no way to get that information. We can speculate, and we can aggregate seemingly unrelated information in an attempt to paint a legible picture, but there are just so many blank spots that ensure even the most informed speculator is working from a lot of guesswork. So keep that in mind when having this type of discussion. It's also important to note that an understanding of the past in this case doesn't necessarily accurately inform the present. The first space age began with Sputnik's launch by the Soviet Union in 1957 and peaked with the U.S. Apollo program, which ended in 1972. The second space age is generally considered to have begun in the early 1990s as the Soviet Union collapsed the world stage changed and the age of computers made digital technologies ubiquitous on the ground and made microchips a given in all of our technologies out beyond the atmosphere. The information age, as this period is also often called, made space launches commonplace enough that most people aren't even aware of 99% of the launches that take place. Another attribute of this second space age is that the majority of launches and hardware launched into orbit are paid for and owned by private companies rather than governments. And this is increasingly true today. Some scholars on the subject have even argued that we should designate the early 2000s onward, from around 2002 until today, as a third space age, which is defined by private space companies and research rather than the same, controlled almost exclusively by government agencies. The reason we can't necessarily look backward to understand what's happening today, though, is that around the same time that the first space age ended, there also emerged a new cloak of secrecy around government activities in space. Although there have always been military efforts up there orbiting Earth, that secrecy became more expansive and complete from the 90s forward 
as the United States became, arguably, the world's sole remaining superpower, a superpower that was determined to lock in and expand upon that role, expand its own power and influence. So even as government funding for many existing public-facing space efforts was curtailed, and even as many of the surviving programs were merged with similar programs funded by other governments, the International Space Station being a prime example of that type of cooperative science-focused diplomacy, different projects which were kept on the down-low, their funding and purpose largely uncommented upon in unclassified documents, became a lot more common. A relatively well-known example of such a project is the Boeing X-37 series of space planes, one of which, the X-37B, seemed purposefully designed to surreptitiously deliver spy satellites or weaponry into space, or to itself operate for a time as either a spy satellite or a space weapon. This unmanned robotic space plane which could be remotely operated or could operate independently, autonomously, was the target of many write-ups and speculations, and to this day, we don't know if, as the Chinese claim, it was being used to spy on the Chinese space station module Tiangon-1, or if it was being used to test out spy sensors against radiation and other space-based hazards, as claimed by The Guardian in 2014, or if it was being used to test the so-called impossible drive rocket thruster, also called the M-Drive, which was a theoretical propulsion system that didn't seem like it should work, but which had proven compelling enough in lab tests to warrant additional scrutiny by the U.S. government. It may be that the X-37 was used for all of these purposes, and more, or perhaps it was used for none of these rumored use cases, and instead was purpose-built for something more specific and nefarious or something incredibly mundane and so boring that it would put conspiracy theorists to sleep. The X-37B is an autonomous or semi-autonomous robotic space plane that can carry passengers and or cargo, and which can stay in orbit without interference for the better part of a year, about 270 days. There are a lot of potential uses for such a thing. Now, the X-37 design again, is just one of many such vehicle families, such technologies that we kind of sort of know about, but don't really know about. Journalists and enthusiasts are continuously catching whiffs of weird new projects that may or may not be real. Rumors that drift out of locked-down research centers like Los Alamos and the Homey Airport facility, which is more popularly known as Area 51. That latter location, Area 51, was only formally acknowledged to exist by the CIA in 2005, after a Freedom of Information Act request was made about the base. So the fact that anything seeps out at all is amazing, though in my mind that level of security also increases the possibility that what information does seep out is possibly misinformation of some kind, meant to conceal what's actually happening inside. It wouldn't be the first time that's happened. So that's another good thing to keep in mind as a possibility here. An interesting side note, in 1974, astronauts aboard Skylab, the precursor to today's International Space Station, accidentally took photos of Area 51 from orbit. And this apparently created quite the hubbub, as this was the only plot of land on the entire planet that astronauts were specifically told not to photograph, as the 
research being done there was apparently the most secretive and sensitive on earth, according to the US government. This discussion was, as far as released documents have indicated at least, it was never brought to a close, and the images of Area 51 from Skylab were not retroactively classified, as some people in the agency had requested. So they were released with the other information about Area 51 when the Freedom of Information Act request was fulfilled. I'm not going to get into the alien angle of Area 51 or how aliens could play into the concept of war in space. I may dive deeper into that in a future episode and have mentioned it a little bit in the past, but I will note that knowing the government was able to keep exotic aircraft like the X-37 and the U-2 and Project Oxcart, all of which are very weird looking and incredibly bizarre aircraft, that they could keep that stuff under wraps even as they went through all the requisite test flights and training, to me, that speaks volumes about their ability to keep even big, bizarre, resource and labor-intensive projects under wraps. Which again, is why it's more than believable that right now, today, not just the US government, but governments around the world, and quite possibly even non-government entities like corporations, have private, classified, space-based weaponry, vehicles, and other technologies under development and perhaps even operational. There are a lot of reports from governments around the world about so-called phenomena that are designated as UFOs, as unidentified flying objects. And there's a chance that some of these are, in fact, visitors from somewhere else in space. But there's also a very good chance that at least some are technologies being tested by other entities here on Earth, but which are strange and exotic enough that even trained pilots, military professionals, scientists, would not recognize them as such. Now, the other countries and other entities point that I just made is an important one. Yes, the US and Russia have a massive head start, due to their participation in the first space age and the accompanying space race. But other countries that picked up soon after that, like China and Japan and the collective of countries behind the European Space Agency, they're all doing very well for themselves these days. India has sent research equipment to Mars. Nigeria's space agency has launched a handful of their own satellites. This is a worldwide thing these days. You no longer need to be a superpower to have a presence out beyond the atmosphere. The US and USSR were responsible for 90% of all satellites during the first space age, but the majority of satellites today are operated by countries other than the US and Russia, and there are more satellites operated by private companies than militaries, satellites that we know about at least. But although having more players in this space represents a huge opportunity and a valuable, diverse collection of resources and points of view, it also represents a type of destabilization. Everyone involved has slightly different goals, different expectations. And there are some entities with a large presence up there who are playing by a different set of rules than everyone else. And even more menacing than that, quite possibly, are the groups that don't have a large presence up there but have the capacity to get up there, and as a consequence, who have much less to lose if something horrible were to happen in orbit to all that infrastructure that's been built over the past six decades or so. A concise way to illustrate how all that stuff up there in orbit, which is seemingly out of reach, but which is in fact actually quite vulnerable, 
is to talk real quick about some tests that were done in the Pacific in the early 60s. Operation Dominic was a series of 31 nuclear weapons tests that were conducted in the Pacific as a response to the Soviets resuming their own nuclear weapons testing after a three-year moratorium that was coming to an end. This series of tests included new models of nuclear weapons, new situations in which they might be used, and new methods of delivery for nuclear payloads. Operation Fishbowl was a smaller operation within Operation Dominic that included five of the 31 Dominic tests, all of which would take place at a high altitude. Meaning, rather than dropping nuclear weapons and allowing them to detonate on or just above the target, they would detonate these weapons way, way up in the sky. The majority of these attempts were aborted when pieces of the tracking or detonating hardware malfunctioned. But one of them, which was designated Starfish Prime, worked. On July 9, 1962, a 1.45 megaton nuclear weapon, making it about 100 times more powerful than the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima, was launched atop a Thor missile and detonated 250 miles, that's about 400 kilometers, above sea level over the Pacific Ocean. The Van Allen belts, bands of high-energy particles held in place around the planet by strong magnetic fields, had recently been discovered, and it was thought by some, including James Van Allen, who discovered the belts, that by detonating nuclear weapons in space, at the right place and in the right way, they may be able to either disrupt these belts of dangerous radiation, weakening or destroying them entirely, or they may be able to use these belts in some way, channel that radiation, perhaps, to attack their enemies. Neither of these possibilities proved to be the case. The electromagnetic pulse from the Starfish Prime detonation knocked out electrical systems nearly 1,000 miles, that's about 1,400 kilometers, away in Hawaii, and artificial aurora borealis were visible from New Zealand to Los Angeles. The explosion also crippled or killed a third of all satellites that were currently orbiting Earth, including the first-ever communications satellite, which was launched the next day. And perhaps most disconcertingly, the blast actually added more dangerous high-energy particles to the Van Allen belts around Earth rather than breaking them apart, making space a more dangerous place for humans and satellites for five years after the blast. Now, humans being humans, the Cold War being the Cold War, this was not the last orbital nuke of its kind, despite how horribly Starfish Prime turned out. The Soviets detonated some of their own way up in space and near space, and the U.S. set off a few more as well, for good measure. As a consequence, we now have a pretty good sense of what happens when nukes are used at high altitudes, and frighteningly, have even worked those options into our military playbook. It may be useful, for instance, to create a huge EMP blast over a highly populated area, despite the many downsides of such an act. It's also important to prepare for what might happen if an enemy does the same over one of our cities. And as I alluded to before, it may make sense for a relatively underpowered military to use a nuke or other explosive in this way. 
knocking out a significant portion of the satellites in orbit, which are primarily owned by wealthier, higher-tech societies, could serve as a massive blow to those more powerful foes. And such a strike could be leveled by a relatively underpowered player. It's also possible that the threat of such an act, taking out a significant portion of the 1,700 or so satellites currently in orbit, could be threatened for diplomatic or monetary gain. It's not unthinkable, for instance, that North Korea, which has few resources in orbit, could threaten the U.S. and other countries the world, really, with such an act, demanding resources and diplomatic power in exchange, holding everything in orbit hostage. And that is one of the big important points in this discussion. If you take nothing else away from this episode, please take note that new technologies and new military theaters often result in shifts in the global power dynamic. This has been true throughout history, and it is true here as well. Sometimes the change is from ground to sea or from sea to air, and those nations, those people with experience with these new technologies, or some latent or first-mover advantage, tend to take more control than they had before as a result of that changeover. The U.S. became the power that they did post-World War II, in part because it was able to build up a massive navy and air force that allowed it to police and thereby control international trade routes. Sometimes the shift is from formal battle formations to something more loose and less quote-unquote civilized by conventional standards. When that happens, those with less background, fewer traditions, or a more malleable sense of military structure tend to take the day. Or they take more than they would otherwise, at least, even if they don't win. They get an outsized slice of the pie. Sometimes the shift is from hulking government-backed organizations and infrastructure to looser node-oriented networks held together by low-end but effective and ubiquitous technologies that are made effective in part because they bring the war beyond the battlefield into civilian populations. Part of why terrorism has proven to be so effective of late is that it allows smaller groups to wield an asymmetric power dynamic, and it operates by different rules than those that helped the United States and other governments take dominance over the past few hundred years. Countries like Russia and North Korea and China have made clever use of a similar dynamic, hacking corporate entities located in other countries for diplomatic gain and, at times, for economic profit. They've also, more recently, exploited weaknesses in democratic systems of government by manipulating the open press in democratic countries, supporting politicians and perspectives that are favorable to their personal causes, and failing that, even at the low end of the success scale, they've succeeded in stirring up animus and sowing chaos and spurring doubt about the democratic process and the free press. Russia's little green men tactic, which was utilized to annex, to steal, essentially, large chunks of territory from Ukraine, is also fairly novel within this space. Russian President Putin was able to leverage disinformation and diplomatic deniability and cultural manipulation and a very small number of military forces to take desirable choke points and resources from Ukraine and to bolster his reputation with his own people as a conqueror at the same time. These and other changes in dynamic 
represent opportunities to massively shift large-scale systems of power. And though we haven't yet seen space utilized in this way, not overtly at least, there's a lot of potential there to give currently underpowered entities the opportunity to play a bigger game in a theater in which they have some kind of advantage. The reshifting of life because of terrorism, the adjusting of power, both governmentally and societally, due to hacking and other asymmetric attack methods, potentially pale in comparison to what might be accomplished by a suitably capable and unscrupulous player who's able to leverage the proper resources at the proper altitude. It's easy to take for granted the many marvels of the modern world that are enabled by our presence in orbit. GPS, mobile phone services and the mobile internet, weather prediction sensors and satellite maps, deep space exploration telescopes like the Hubble, and deep sea exploration telescopes like the ESA's Cryosat-2 and NASA's CNES Jason-1. It's become a truism that there will never be a real uprising or revolution in the modern United States because everything is so friction-free. We all have our two-day shipping, our always-on unlimited entertainment streaming, our social media-saturated supercomputers that fit in our pockets. It's very debatable whether or not that truism is actually true, but can you imagine the uproar that would be caused if the satellites that enable those things, the tracking on packages, the streaming of movies and music, the communication between smartphones, if all that disappeared, if overnight we went from an economy and arguably a society empowered by these technologies to a society suddenly without them, it would be rough. It would be devastating to some industries, but on the personal level, it would immensely suck. It would piss people off. It would disrupt essentially everything. Can you imagine a better shot across the bow should someone wish to hamstring a major power like the U.S.? Can you imagine a better way to distract everyone from some big move taking place elsewhere than removing our ability to do essentially all of the things we take for granted? That's what I'm talking about here. A true asymmetric advantage claimed either as part of a first strike move or as a silent ninja-like blow from an unknown enemy meant to weaken an existing focus of power. Things get even worse if we move our imaginations from the covert to the overt possibilities. Imagine, for instance, what would happen if a sufficiently large chunk of anything, really, came crashing down to Earth, made it through the atmosphere, and slammed into the planet at great speed. If the chunk of matter was big enough, that could lead to an extinction-level event. There's no friction in space, no terminal velocity. So if you get something moving up there, it keeps moving at that speed. And if it moves toward us, the sheer speed of even something relatively small could be cataclysmic. As we dial up our space-based efforts toward asteroid mining, this could become a true concern. After all, it just takes one rogue company or organization or person with access to space-based rock-moving capabilities to potentially destroy all life on the planet. That's a fairly substantial worst-case scenario that requires a relatively small quantity of resources and effort and know-how to achieve it, especially if the infrastructure for moving things like asteroids is already in place 
one pissed off employee, or even one suitably inept employee, could trigger human extinction, not to mention all of the other animals and plant life on Earth. But that's a little ways in the future. Today, the major threat in space, I would argue, is less about nukes and radiation and asteroids, though those are very substantial threats that we should be thinking about and preparing for, and more about smaller, more focused uses of kinetic energy, which is to say, slamming stuff into other stuff. China demonstrated the potential and danger of this type of weaponry in 2007 when they tested a kinetic kill vehicle, in essence a giant space bullet, on one of their own aging weather satellites. This space bullet collided with the satellite at 8 kilometers a second, or nearly 5 miles a second. Again, stuff moves very fast in space, which blasted the satellite to bits. Mission accomplished. As a consequence of that success, however, the satellite broke into more than 2,000 pieces of golf ball-sized or larger debris, and an estimated 150,000 debris particles all of which can be incredibly dangerous in orbit, all of them moving at high speeds and never stopping unless their orbit degrades and the atmosphere burns them up. It's estimated, based on current tracking models, that about 30% of the larger pieces of debris from the destruction of that satellite in 2007 will still be orbiting the planet like tiny little space bullets in the year 2035. I did an episode on the technologies being used to attempt to control orbital debris. It's episode 32 and is entitled Frontiers, if you're interested. So I won't say much more about that topic here in this episode, but I will add, for the purposes of this conversation, that China has reportedly tested this type of satellite-destroying weaponry twice in the years since 2007, and that the United States tested the same technology back in the 80s, and gave it another go in 2008. It's suspected that the U.S. opted for that more recent launch to show the Chinese that they still could, which speaks volumes about the posturing that's going on here, even if neither country or the other nations with a stake in space are being seriously overt about their relative military power and offensive and defensive capabilities in orbit. Thus far... There's been no combat, no military conflict in space. But the writing is on the wall that although there is a United Nations treaty on the principles to which member states should adhere when operating in space and on celestial bodies like the moon, these principles aren't really adhered to in any strict sense. One of the principles, for instance, is that, quote, States shall avoid harmful contamination of space and celestial bodies, end quote. Which, I mean, if you look at all the junk up there, the ever-increasing cloud of dangerous debris whipping around the planet at all times, it's pretty clear that these guidelines are more for show than anything, at least at the moment. The practical realities and in-situ needs of the entities involved, those are what's guarding our species' hand, not United Nations policy. So it's probably a good idea that we figure out how to ensure that those realities and needs align with not stumbling into military conflict with each other in the first place. Systems in space can be hacked. They can be fried by radiation or explosions. They can be captured by military craft or other satellites. They can be blown apart by space bullets. They can be deorbited and incinerated in the atmosphere. 
or they can be brought down in such a way that they survive the atmosphere and crash down onto land or sea. Assets in space are expensive, far away, and moving very, very fast. These assets are generally hardened against things like radiation because of the environment in which they're meant to exist, but they're actually quite frail in comparison to the hardware that we have on Earth. Getting heavier weight assets up there in the first place is incredibly costly and generally not considered to be worth the expense. All of those assets are subject to dazzling, spoofing, seizure, corruption, monitoring, jamming, and even concealing. A properly motivated antagonist has a variety of options. If they want to punch above their weight class in space, and the tools required to do that punching are increasingly available to not just organizations around the world, but to the public in the form of consumer and professional-grade goods. It's possible, maybe even likely, that the first full-fledged robot war will be fought in space, not on Earth. It's also possible that such a conflict would result in a loss, or at best a Pyrrhic victory, for the stronger, more expensive military involved. The capacity to cause harm in space is enhanced by its very nature, and by our lack of contemporary technologies that neutralize most of its many hazards. The seemingly obvious solution here, then, is a policy of deterrence, reinforcement, and escalation. If someone, anyone, steps up to you in space, you slap them the hell down as brutally as possible. You make an example, in space and on land, and then you seal up the weak spot that they utilized. You cripple any potential opponent's capacity to do the same thing in the future. You set up fail-safes to ensure that anyone who tries something similar later, even if they succeed, will regret it. And you make sure potential future threats know that they will regret it. You build a sort of doomsday device that will, for example, microwave all of your assailants' satellites or drop a tactical nuke on their capital. Whether or not you are there to pull the trigger on that action yourself, you ensure that they know that's what will happen automatically. That is the common logic of contemporary military thinking. What's frightening about this possibility is that if we use that same logic in space that has led us to the nuclear standoff that we're still stuck in today, down here on Earth, we may do immense damage to future humans, all humans, without launching a single nuke. And that damage could have horrible repercussions that extend for a very long time, possibly even forever. Imagine this scenario. The U.S. or some other big country with a large number of military and space assets becomes increasingly reliant on space. We're dependent on all the stuff up there for our standard of living, so we want to make sure that it's not going to be taken away from us by space terrorists or rogue nations with medium-grade missile programs. So we build up our space defense infrastructure. We harden our satellites against both radiation and kinetic strikes. We upgrade our software making it all but unhackable, something that's not really possible, but we get as close as we can. Other countries see us do this and feel compelled to do the same. Military asymmetry is commonly perceived as an existential threat, after all. That, by the way, is part of what's so dangerous about building missile defense systems when the world is held in balance, at least in theory or in perception by everyone having nuclear weapons pointed at each other. If one side suddenly doesn't have to worry about those nukes, that 
upsets the balance, and conventional warfare or first strikes before the system is fully operational become more thinkable. So to avoid that possibility, these other powers up their security, their power, their capabilities as well to maintain that balance. Accidents happen. Satellites crash, missiles and vehicles explode. Eventually it becomes too dangerous up there to keep humans aboard the International Space Station. There are just too many particles and weapons and collision opportunities, so we make low-Earth orbit completely automated. And that includes our countermeasures and fail-safes and our just-in-case weaponry. There's a chance that some other power or some terrorist or whatever could hack our command and control systems and our remote control systems. So we make sure that all of our stuff up there All of our defenses and weapons and arrays of data-gathering sensors can operate independently, without us having to tell them to do anything. It's thinkable at this point that two things, both horrible in slightly different ways, could happen. The first unfortunately thinkable path is that of the collision cascade. One particularly large satellite crashes into a space station, or one missile accidentally blows up, taking its housing structure with it, and suddenly there are clouds of new bits of supersonic shrapnel flying through highly trafficked orbits. These pieces destroy other pieces, other satellites, other weapon systems, other stations, and those too are turned into chunks of useless and dangerous kinetic energy. The space around the planet over time, with enough collisions, each increasing the chances of more collisions, becomes saturated with bullets of all shapes and sizes. We would like to replace those satellites that gave us our high standard of living, but we can't. There are no safe orbits left. It's a death sentence for any human or robot that we might want to send up there. We have to wait, maybe centuries, for most of that wreckage to burn up in the atmosphere. But some of it, perhaps much of it, will never slow down, or stop, or leave. We become trapped down on Earth, surrounded by a cloud of endless space bullets. The second unfortunately thinkable path is that of the automated death jacket. We set up so much infrastructure out there in space, all the pieces pointing at each other, and all the pieces capable of operating in isolation, that at some point we are unable to move, unable to function, without potentially accidentally setting something off, without triggering some component of a complex Rube Goldberg-esque system that leads to another type of cascade, some kind of self-destruct sequence or misfired counterattack that leads to World War III. It could be that we lose effective control of these systems, it could be that we still technically have control, but it's such a tangled mess that we can't be sure of what will set off what. In either case, we build our own planet-sized prison, locking ourselves in with death machines meant to watch the other death machines. It's the planetary equivalent of surrounding ourselves with landmines. We put them there to protect ourselves. But then we can't figure out a way to safely leave when we want to. We're stuck. This second possibility, in particular, at some scale, seems pretty likely to me. Because unlike on Earth, there are no hard-set boundaries in space. There's no sovereignty. There are no borders to respect. That means, in theory at least, 
Anyone who occupies space and who can defend that space kind of owns it, in practice at least. And though we haven't worked out the legalities of how that works in terms of international law, the Wild West theory would seem to apply here. I've got a bigger gun, so this here land is mine. I've built a fence around it, so this is my territory now. The incentive to build defensive infrastructure then is heightened out there because there are no invisible societal boundaries available to take the place of that kind of infrastructure. There are no definitive consequences for claim jumping or thieving, no universally recognized sheriff to kill or jail the space bandits. There is movement within this realm of inquiry, thankfully, that of space politics, I mean. I can't think of any other situation in which I would be thankful for the development of more politics and more bureaucracy, but because of the potential consequences of not legislating this space, I'm personally looking forward to getting some basic rules established, at the very least. Rules that we can evolve as our use of space and needs as a species evolve, and which hopefully will not lock in today's existing inequalities, though on that last point I'm not holding my breath. That tends to be the case with this type of thing. Those inequalities tend to stick around, at least for a while, after this type of parallax shift. In any case, deterrence theory, which often involves things like pointing nuclear missiles at each other, works by changing the math of what an aggressor has to lose should they choose to aggress against you. Laws, especially laws with teeth, with mandated consequences, serve that same purpose, especially if there are clearly outlined thresholds, lines that everyone knows not to cross, and a policy of resilience in what we build to avoid accidents, and a standard of attribution so we know who did what and what their intentions were. This can achieve the same or better ends than a Cold War-style standoff, and it significantly lessens the possibility of some kind of doomsday scenario. Now, there is not, unfortunately, a current universally accepted international space organization. Many countries around the world now have their own space agencies, even if they themselves have not launched anything into space. And these agencies tend to play well with each other. But there's no UN for space, no hegemony of exploration. And I'm a little torn on whether there should be, at least right now, because on one hand, the benefits would be clear in that we would be able to set guidelines by which everyone could operate, and there would be fewer opportunities for horrible outcomes as a result of misunderstandings or oversteps. On the other hand, this is such a nascent realm of exploration that I worry if we lock everything down too quickly and get everyone adhering to the same rules, using the same metrics and the same technological standards, chasing the same goals we may miss opportunities for valuable evolution. We may miss out on the mutations that emerge when things are open and weird, in which a whole lot of what's tried will be suboptimal, but some very few things will be better than what we would have likely arrived at had we clamped down sooner. That said, the upsides of international organization very well might outweigh the downsides. It may be that if we wait too much longer, we will miss our opportunity entirely. Someone big like the US or China or Russia, or maybe even some big mega corporation, some meta-national corporation, may step in and set up what amounts to space fences all over the place and de facto own 
all that territory, slowing down the rate of human exploration and growth for generations. Now, I hope that won't be the case, but it's very possible. As with all things astronomical, though, the clarity with which we can see all of the variables at play here will increase with time. I just hope that we as a species manage to take the necessary leaps to get ourselves to whatever level comes next while we still can. The book that I'd like to recommend today is space-related. I thought it made sense to bring in something kind of fun and science fiction-y. It's called Pushing Ice, and it's by Alistair Reynolds, the author of a series that I'm pretty sure I recommended on here maybe last year, the Revelation Space series, which is really quite good. This is just a novel. It's not a series. And it's a novel about space that starts out in relatively contemporary times, probably a few decades in the future. And kind of the catalyzing moment for the story is that one of Saturn's moons, Janus, deviates dramatically from its usual orbit around Saturn, and it sets a path for a distant point in space. Now, humanity recognizes this, and they send out an ice mining vehicle, the Rock Hopper, to rendezvous with Janus before it leaves the solar system, because the Rock Hopper is close enough to intercept it, to intercept what now seems to be some kind of alien vehicle, rather than a moon, before it leaves, so that they can learn whatever possible about this alien artifact. This story is particularly compelling, I think, because it addresses a whole lot of issues related to spaceflight, and the downsides particularly of space travel and exploration. Namely, if you travel at a significant percentage of the speed of light, time around you, outside the vehicle, moves far faster than the time that you experience in transit. And there's also the downsides and opportunities of living within a closed-loop system where everything must be recycled, and kind of the mind-bending gymnastics that a person must go through when entering and learning about a wider universe in which there's so much that you don't know and there are so many potential opportunities, but also a vast array of threats and missteps that you won't know about until you take them. This book is a whole lot of fun. It's very interesting. It actually just occurred to me it would probably be a great entry into reading science fiction if that's not your typical genre. The characters are interesting. The The book is well-written. The language is quite good in it, in addition to the concepts being really interesting. So if you get the chance, if you're looking for a good read, Pushing Ice by Alistair Reynolds comes very highly recommended. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. And you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsnotethings.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube and other places of that kind. Thank you so very much for listening. I am Colin Wright and I will talk to you again next week. Thank you.